Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog talk radio. Well, tonight's show will focus on a story researched and written by Karen Brannan entitled The Family Tree, a Lynching in Georgia, A Legacy of Secrets, and My Search for the Truth. Brannon describes her almost 20 years search for the truth behind her grandmother's casual reply to the query, what is your most unforgettable memory? The reply was the hanging, which Brannon would learn referred to the 1912 lynching of four black residents, a woman and three men, in retaliation for the killing of the sheriff. Karen Brannan is a veteran journalist who has written for newspapers, magazines, stage, and television for almost 50 years. And her work has appeared in several periodicals, as well as she's participated in others, such as PBS, CBS, ABC, CBC, BBC, and CNN. So let me give a warm welcome to Karen Brannan to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. Welcome, Karen. Good evening, Bernice. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Well, it is an honor to have you, and I know that this is a book that you have researched for a very, very long time. So let's let's start at your beginning because I I did mention about a casual comment from your grandmother, but what really motivated you to begin this research? Well, there were a number of things. Uh, I trace it back. Uh, I, I say that I knew from childhood that I was going to write some kind of book about the South, probably about a small town in the South, but I did not know what the story was. And so I spent many, many years doing investigative reporting and uh, exposing the crimes of other people's families and other and politicians and all manner of people other than my own family. In fact, I left the South right out after graduating from the University of Georgia. But uh, when I was about 11, my father told me a couple of quick stories that uh, no grown-up should tell a child uh, and because they were too 
uh, frightening for me to think about. I tucked them away back in the recesses of my brain somewhere. One of those stories was that he had accidentally killed a young black woman when he was a young man, and he told me that story as a way of explaining why he could not stop drinking. He was an alcoholic. Uh, the other story uh, had to do with my sheriff grandfather, who he said would get on a train and leave town when some men, as he put it, uh, wanted to take somebody out of the jail. And I was old enough to know what that meant, uh, but I didn't ask him any further questions. Those those two stories uh, kind of disappeared and came back to haunt me when I was in my late 40s, early 50s. Uh, and one of the things that had happened in 1984, I did this interview, this oral history with my grandmother uh, several years before she died, and, and she told me about this hanging, but she did not call it alleging. She did not mention that uh, it had to do with African-American people. And the way she told it to me, it sounded as if it were a judicial uh, execution. Though out of doors, that was strange. A woman, that was even stranger. Uh, but I let it go. Uh, but two years later, my high school, uh, senior in high school son and his uh, African-American girlfriend came home. Uh, we were living in Minneapolis and told me that I was going to be a grandmother. And I was not pleased, but uh, it, it went deeper than that. I was uh, had worked in civil rights all my life. Uh, I had raised a non-racist son, but I suddenly had this deep, deep fear uh, of this baby coming into the world. I still had racist uh, parents. Uh, well, my mother, my father was dead by then. A lot of racist cousins, uh, relatives living in Georgia, and I was afraid of what their reaction would be, but I felt something even deeper, and I didn't know what that was. And I found myself really kind of guided uh, over the next several years into this story. And so I went back down to Georgia to see if I could find out about this young woman that my father thought he had killed. And he went to his grave believing he had killed this woman. And as I asked around, it became clear to me that at least what he described to me had not happened, that he had not killed anyone. But I was brought back to my grandmother's story of the hanging. And uh, so I came back up here. Uh, I had found a date. All I needed was a date for this hanging. And my sister had a book that she had just received. Karen? Yes. Hello, Karen? Sure. Mm-hmm. Karen, we're, we're losing your voice. Can you speak up a little bit louder? Yes, yes I'm sorry. Um, I had been down in Georgia asking these questions, and I had learned that the the young woman that my father thought he had killed, that she had not died, and he had hit a, a young woman, but she had not died, and somehow he had gotten this idea. But then this business of the hanging came up that my grandmother had talked about, and I, I, because of some things I was told about that, I decided that this was really what I needed to look into. Um, so I, I, if I can read a few paragraphs from my book, I describe I'm at the Library of Congress looking for this in, for information about this lynching. Okay. I, I expected bold headlines, a major front-page story in the Atlanta Constitution, Four Negroes lynched by Hamilton Avengers, woman one of victims. Avengers, my brain tabulated, avenging what? And then I saw it coming like headlights, gleaming out of the fog, the third bold-faced headline. Negroes were accused of murdering Hadley. Hadley, my mother's maiden name. Which Hadley? Murdered. This I'd never heard. The next headline and some further probing provided the answer. Hadley, who was a well-to-do planter, was shot Sunday afternoon while sitting in his home. Negroes held on suspicion, about a hundred men in mob. Now I had, by now I had stopped breathing but not reading. Suddenly the microfilm machine lost focus, and while I fiddled frantically, an intercom announced that the library was closing and lights began to blink. I would have to wait until tomorrow. 
I turned the machine off and for a moment sat drawn into myself, barely breathing, eyes closed, scalp drawing tight the way it does just before a virus settles in. Well, here it was, the thing I sought. Be careful when you go shaking those family trees, my Aunt Evelyn had warned. You never know what you'll find. She was sure as hell right about that. A woman and three men, one of them a preacher, one of them, two of them farmers, all of them black, had been hanged by a mob of men, many surely related to my cousin Norman Hadley, beside the baptismal pool, outside the Friendship Baptist Church, a short walk from where the sheriff lived, hanged and shot more than 300 times on a wintry January night. And as I sat there growing numb, I intuitively knew that many more of my kinfolk had been caught up in that madness on one side or the other. I desperately hoped the sheriff had tried to stop it. In that moment, I experienced an odd sense that I had known all these people, the murderers, the silent ones, the murdered ones, the powerless ones. I felt myself there with each man, woman, and child snared in that net, and I hungered for every detail of their lives. Who were they? How did they live, think, vote, love, laugh, write, speak, work, live, raise children, treat their neighbors? What did they know of one another, the murderers and the murdered? What long road had they traveled together? I was not willing to accept that this was simply the way white Southerners dealt with, quote, racial matters. This was, to my knowledge, the only public lynching ever carried out in Harris County. There was something I and perhaps others could learn from this tragic affair. Perhaps we could understand what turns mild-mannered, church-going family men into cold-blooded killers how something so shameful happens in the heart of a simple village and virtually disappears, and where, if anywhere, it goes, whether it ripples down through generations, finding new forms in the future, and where, indeed, I might find its residue in my own life. I determined to learn all I could. Okay, that's, that's that. That kind of sets the stage for the, for the questions that I had. For the, the kinds of things that I wanted to know as I set out to do my research. Well, Karen, uh, I this wanted is... to know. Go ahead. Yes, go, go ahead. ahead on. I wanted to know about the individuals, all the people. You know, the white people, the black people. Um, I I especially wanted to know how they were connected to one another, uh, mm-hmm. if they were connected to one another. Uh, but I also wanted to know what was going on outside of that small town and that small county and how, you know, national and regional events were impacting the people there and what national and regional events might have had to do with with the lynching itself. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. I, I had learned practically nothing uh, true of Southern history at the University of Georgia. Um, so I really had to give myself a postgraduate education in Southern history, and it happened that Southern historians were much more progressive by the time I began my research in the 1990s. Uh, so there was a lot of wonderful um, scholarly work that had been done, as well as a lot of wonderful popular histories that had been written. And so I was very fortunate in that regard. Right. Well, Karen, for a second, just so that people could understand exactly when did this take place, give us the year of uh, when this lynching took place. The lynching took place in 1912. And I discovered that that was an important date because it was, uh, well, 1911 was the year that uh, the South was celebrating and remembering, the white South, I should say, was celebrating and remembering the 50th anniversary of the beginning of the Civil War. And all during uh, uh, during that period of time, roughly from 1910 to 1912, there were a lot of different kinds of commemorations, uh, which was a way of bolstering um, the idea that the South uh, had still had the white South still had the right ideas politically and culturally. 
uh, and 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 basically preaching the uh, ideology of white supremacy. So people were being, you know, politicized. White people were being more politicized than they had been for a long time about white superior, white supremacy, and 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 racism, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Confederate soldier uh, was uh, was erected on the square in 1910 in Hamilton, uh, and there were many speeches and many many kinds of you know recognitions of different battles, uh, both won and lost in the South, uh, honoring the old soldiers and uh, you know trying trying to because 1890 the 1890s had been an interesting period around there. It was a period of time when populism almost won the South and populism brought blacks and whites, especially poor blacks and poor whites together uh, closer than they had ever been in history and uh, really scared the bejesus out of the 1%, uh, which were, were my family. And um, so all kinds of things were being done to separate blacks and whites. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also... Go ahead. No, you go, go ahead. ahead. Well, there was, it was also a time when, uh, it, which people know very little about because very little has been written about it. Uh, a lot of a lot of laws were being passed, uh, you know, segregating public facilities. But there was also a movement to break up uh, interracial, uh, not, well, not marriages because people couldn't get married, but interracial relationships. Uh, and in, what I discovered was that in Harris County, of course, white men were always. Uh, predators of black women and black girls, and there was a big movement against that, uh, led by people like um, Anna Julia Cooper and uh, Ida Wells Barnett and uh, Mary Church Terrell, and these people had ties to Georgia, and and, and in fact had ties to my family. Uh, Anna Julia Cooper turned out to be a cousin of my family, and they were coming down and they were speaking out, and uh, White women were not having anything to do with them on the surface or in public, but they were hearing what they said, and their words eventually began to affect uh, white Methodist women who, uh, it took them a long time, but eventually they formed organizations and stood against lynching. But uh, at the time of this lynching, there were uh, clubs being formed all over Georgia to fight to fight what was called in that in that day miscegenation. And in in the in Harris County, and I'm sure in most counties in the South, actually, there was a system of what my mother called two family families, in which a white man would have a black family and a white family. And they would have children that all looked alike except for the color of their skin. And everybody in the county knew who they belonged to. And this was known, but it was not, you know, it may have been talked about. uh, But there was an effort to put an end to all of this and to put an end to white men who were simply raping black women and getting away with it, which they all did, of course. Uh, And... uh, some of these national figures, African-American women in particular, were speaking out against this. And uh, there were also, in, in, the, in, the, in the state, there were these clubs being formed. And so there was a lot of pressure uh, against this, the, you know, the, these families who, who were. And my family was, uh, was one of these families. They had two family families, and they had... Uh, black and white uh, family members from slavery who made moonshine together, who uh, partied together, who uh, observed separate separate, uh, lives where it was necessary. But when the sun went down, there was a lot of frolicking that went on between the white men and the black men and some black women, probably some white women too, but I haven't been able to establish that. And so this lynching really, there are a lot lot of intricacies of this lynching that I won't go into and a lot of reasons that it happened. But it was going, had it gone to court, it would have um, been extremely humiliating for the sheriff and his family and for the town of Hamilton and for the white, uh, I'm talking about the white people, um, because it would have exposed the hypocrisy behind uh, 
white supremacy, which they all believed in. There were numerous reporters, uh, investigative reporters like myself, coming down from the north and writing stories about these two family families and exposing the fact that judges and lawyers and bankers and even some state legislators had black families. And this was an increasing embarrassment to the south, and so these white politicians and uh, preachers and editorial writers were trying to organize these little kind of law and order leagues to monitor the behavior of people and to report anybody that was engaged in any form of interracial sex. This has been been very little written about. It was widely written about in newspapers, so you can get a lot of information about it. But this was at the heart of this lynching, this whole effort uh, to put an end uh, to interracial sex. And we're not talking about sex between here. We're not talking about sex between black men and white women or the so-called black rapist thing, which was all a bunch of hoo-ha anyway uh, to justify lynching. Okay, ask your questions. Okay. Now, you know, when we talk about what you have done, and some people may refer to the genealogy that most people do as, quote, safe genealogy. That means uh-huh. you're, not, you're not finding the skeletons in the closet. But you indeed went for the skeletons to, uh, to, to, expose, to expose what you heard beginning with oral history. And so right. when you read the Atlanta Constitution and you saw you saw four Negroes lynch, what kinds of questions came up in your mind as you you sat there and you read uh this this article? Right. Well, the article, my first question was, you know, what in the world, who were these people, uh, what Mm -hmm. had they done uh, to, you know, to warrant such such an outrageous display of hatred? Who could they possibly be, a woman and a preacher and a young farmer and another farmer? Who were they? And uh, what had they done? Well, the the article itself, uh, I believe that article, but all the early articles describe it, and there were a lot of articles about this, said that they they had been in a dispute over rents with uh, with Norman Hadley who was the uh, nephew of the sheriff who was killed. And uh, so I, the first thing I did was to look in the census to see where they lived. Well, they didn't all live, uh, in fact, I think only one of them lived on Norman Hadley's land or anywhere near Norman Hadley. So I knew that was, that was phony. Uh, I wanted to know, you know, Mainly, what what had they done? What had what had caused this to happen? And who were mm-hmm. these people who had done it? And and mainly, I wanted to know what was my great grandfather, the sheriff's role in all of this, because that report that I read just read about in the in the book from the book um, said that he had tried to stop an earlier lynching and had described how he had done that and that he had talked the mob down uh, on the grounds that he wanted it done in court. He wanted them to be found guilty, but he wanted it done legally. So he had gone and gotten a special trial. Um, I had hoped that he had done everything in his power to stop this lynching. So a lot of my uh, of my research was aimed at determining that and I so much wanted that my emotions really got in the way I have to say that if I'd been doing another person's family uh it would it would have taken me maybe half as long as it took me because it was hard I was deep in denial I mean I had grown up really revering my my grandfather sheriff and his father had to be just as wonderful as I thought you know I was kind of like Harper Lee with Atticus I just wanted Atticus to be perfect and uh it took me a long time time, you know, to really force myself to look at his clay feet and to pay attention to the fact and to really read every single thing I could find in every single newspaper and find the cracks and find the clay feet. And uh, eventually I had to concede, you know, that he did absolutely nothing 
to protect these prisoners, nor did the the judge who had called the special court, who was a rather famous anti-lynching judge. Uh, But he also had, and he had it within his power to order the sheriff uh, either to call out the militia or to... um, to deputize a bunch of men to protect the jail. Instead, they had the mob. The mob was was guarding the, you know, the fox was watching the, the chicken house. And uh, the judge knew it, the sheriff, of course, knew it, and they weren't about to go against the mob. So they let them be the protectors of these four poor people. Yes. And, you know, Karen, I have to tell you, this was an extreme extremely difficult book to read. Yes, I is. would have to I would read a few chapters and I'd just have to put it down and walk around and yeah. and just shake my head because it's it's just sadness. It's I mean the racism and how this uh, was allowed to take place, especially when you begin to talk about Norman Hadley. So tell people a little bit more about Norman Hadley because something happened during this process uh, as you wrote about Norman that he wasn't as goody-goody two-shoes as the newspaper portrayed him. Right. Well, he was he was portrayed as a. Uh, I think they they loved the phrase well disposed. Uh, he had a good personality. He had a good disposition. He was a. Uh, to read just the newspaper articles, you'd have thought he was uh, uh, the the heir to a fortune, a, a, a cultivated young uh, owner of a plantation. Uh, well, none of this was true. Uh, Norman Hadley was basically a moonshine man. Uh, he liked to drink. He liked to party. He was a bachelor. Uh, he had a terrible temper. Uh, he solved most of his problems with his fists. He was very much like uh, most of the men uh, who lived out where he did, by the Chattahoochee River, uh, they were kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Uh, more, they, mm. they killed each other, meaning white, white on white killings were more, far more uh, plentiful than white on black killings or black on black killings. They were, in many ways, you know, the the 1910s equivalent of a lot of what goes on in urban neighborhoods today, with with drugs and fighting and killing each other over clothes and women and money and you know all all of that. That's the way they were, and that was a shock to me. Now this this was my mother's side of the family, and my father's side of the family was a little bit higher placed, but they were all mixed up in this stuff too. Uh, so I can't draw any any bright lines between them. Uh, but the white on white violence uh, was was the, almost as big a shock to me as as the lynching. Uh, I discovered some extremely painful, uh, you know, intra-family uh, murders. And then I discovered uh, when I was going around talking to people, and, and people were my finest resource. Uh, you know, I'm so glad I got down there when I did because if I'd waited even a year, I would have been too late to talk to at least half the people that, that ended up telling me such, you know, so much. Uh, but uh, I discovered that, uh, well, this is what people would say to me. They would say, I would say, well, was anyone ever punished for this? And people would, uh, black and white, would say, every man in the mob died with his boots on. And Mm -hmm. by way of explanation, they might add, unnatural deaths, you understand. Well, what I discovered is that I don't think every man in the mob died with his boots on, but I found 15 who killed, uh, who were murdered, and uh, others of the mob had murdered them, and were in some were in prison. Most got away with it, and then were murdered themselves. So there was a murder spree that went on over the next decade that involved Mm -hmm. many, many, many of my relatives on both sides. 
And the the feeling was among I, I couldn't find any white people who would use this term, but a number of African Americans said to me they were cursed. A curse came over the families of the people that did that. And I did find uh, dozens of freak accidents. A mule mm-hmm. stomped a boy to death. Uh, Things like that, people just dropping dead on their porches or on the sidewalk for no good reason. A lot of unexplained and unnatural deaths occurred, not just to the people that actually participated in the mob, but to, but to their families as well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. some of that, I can, you know, I, I was hesitant in my book to trace that up to the present time, uh, but I did, I did find evidence that it might might still be going on. Oh, wow. Well, there's a comment coming out of the chat, and um, the the chatter is saying that she's just glad you had the fortitude to pass this history that would be a, have been, such, you know, just, just quieted. And yes. so, you know, she's, she's just commenting that it's a good thing that okay. you, 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 you decided to come forth and you did this research to tell this story. Uh, this secret, and well, uh, I'd like to say that I I also am glad that I did. You know, it's it would have been a, a horrible thing to have to you know carry this to the to my grave, um, mm-hmm. and I felt that I owed it to the people that shared it with me. I felt that I owed it to the descendants of the lynching victims who were innocent, entirely mm-hmm. innocent, four people. Uh, I was never able, I have not yet been able, I have not given up, uh, but I was not able by the time the book was to be published to find any of those people. Uh, now that I uh, the book is out, I have some leads on some possibilities and I'm not going to stop. I, I will hope to find them. Uh, but I feel that, uh, you know, it's been a freeing thing for me, as as hard as it was to do. I mean, you said you have to put put the book down. Well, when I was down there, I would find myself sometimes half the way, halfway back to, to uh, D.C. in my car, just running, you know, without even realizing that I had left town. I just had to get away. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was extremely painful to discover uh, a lot of the things that I was discovering. Yes, and I can imagine. I mean, uh, you know, as I read your book, I understood. I mean, the four individuals, they were really, they were just brought in. They, oh, yeah. They were not They were accused. in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. I mean, they it, all had like, a connection to one another. And I don't want to give too much of the book away. Uh, yeah. You know, but there was a, there was probably a good reason that some people may have actually thought they did it, uh, mm-hmm. because they all were connected to a young girl that Norman Hadley was chasing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it looked like these folks had a motive. Uh, yes, but there yes. was no evidence. Absolutely and no evidence. There right. was no evidence at all. Uh, the only thing that the sheriff thought he had was the woman. The woman wasn't suspected of of anything. She was actually supposed to be the witness, and that was all he had. And but she uh, she surprised everybody, and that's all I'm going to say. Right. Well, when they read the book, they'll find out more. But there's a question coming out of the chat, and what has it done to you or for you after all of these years? And, I mean, it has taken you 20 years to put this together. Right. Uh, What's it done to me? Uh, It's impoverished Mm -hmm. me. All for you. (laughs) (laughs) What it's done for me is it's freed me. Uh, from a burden I didn't know I carried. It mm-hmm. has, uh, you know, when I first started this, I did not know what burden I was carrying, but I had this had passed down to me uh, in the cells. Uh, it had passed mm-hmm. down to me, uh, you know, at the wrong end of my mother's anger about things she couldn't talk about but knew about. Um, mm-hmm. I knew that uh, both my parents were... Uh, 
they could have been beautiful people with happy lives. They started out. Uh, my father was a doctor. Uh, my mother was a beautiful woman and a homemaker. And, you know, it was going to be a white middle class life in Columbus, Georgia. And everybody was supposed to be happy. And my father said was a drunk and a drug addict and uh, throw in his career away and uh, left my mother. And something was wrong. There was something wrong. Mm -hmm. And my mother was extremely sensitive to anything having to do with race, all out of proportion to, you know, even the Jim Crow times that we lived in. And as a child, I sensed that. I sensed that something very bad had happened. She yeah. was just way too sensitive to things. And any efforts mm-hmm. I made to, uh, you know, my my childlike goodness that didn't see difference and loved blacks as much as I loved whites would just send her into a frenzy. So I always had this need to explain. And, you know, that that was driving me. I understand now, and, you know, it's a kind of freedom that I have. The other thing was that even though I've spent my life working in on racial justice projects and, you know, had lots of black friends and everything, there's always been something between me. There's always been a distance. And I think this exists with a lot of whites who, who maybe mm-hmm. don't even realize. And I think that's one reason that, you know, there's something that keeps us apart. And what... What keeps us apart is our history, and it's that unknown mm-hmm. history that haunts us and terrifies us and makes us afraid that, you know, someday we're going to have to pay for something, and we don't want to look at that. And uh, I think that what I'm saying is the only way to get free from a lot of these problems we have is for white folks like me to start looking at these things and to bring them out. And it's it's not only personally liberating, I think over the long haul it's going to be politically liberating for us all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there's a comment coming out of the chat that we need to clear out our history and let go Absolutely. of the fear and just accept it. I mean, there's just so, so much that needs to happen because, you know, you really are raising a question, what's going on here? Yeah. Why why are we seeing things that are so disproportionately Right. You know what's going on, and right. and, and and it's and, all it's still with us. It's still with us as, as we, we yes, see it every is. day. Yeah. Yes, it it is. Well, we're going to take a quick break and come back because I want you to share with the the listeners just a process. How did you go about put putting this story together and some of the resources? Okay. So okay. just a quick break, and we will be right back. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history, and all of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio and iTunes. And by the way, when you go to iTunes, please rate the show and let me know what you think about 
some of the shows that I've had. Well, I just want to uh, reiterate to everyone that you have been listening to author Karen Brannon share her research and family story from her book, The Family Tree, A Lynching in Georgia, A Legacy of Secrets, and My Search for the Truth. So, Karen, why don't you give us an idea? We have a lot of genealogists uh, listening to the show. Help us understand, because you have taken two skills as an investigative reporter, but also a genealogist. Let us know just where did you start finding all of your sources to write this book? Okay. Uh, I went all over the place, Bernice. Um, but I'm just going to run through some of my favorite resources, okay? Uh, my best resources were people, uh, and I've already talked a little bit about that. Uh, my next best resource was the Harris County Journal, or the, sometimes called the Hamilton Journal. And it was a uh, weekly, a small town, a county weekly, uh, that came out uh during the entire time that I was researching. I mean, it's, it came out before the war, it came out during the war, it came out during Reconstruction, it came out into Jim Crow, it's still coming out. And uh, unfortunately, that is not online, and it certainly wasn't, very little was online when I was doing this research. So I did a lot of footwork. Uh, I had to go down to the University of Georgia and go through the microfilm, and I don't know why I didn't go blind, because I read every single article in every single issue for the entire time, uh, you know, going way back from the beginning. And I logged it all in, I wrote it all down, and it gave me a picture of that town that nothing else could have. I also used uh, every Georgia newspaper I could get my hands on, and and I did that mainly through Genealogy Bank, which is one of my favorite um, websites. And I didn't just uh, look for people in Genealogy Bank. I would put things in like Moonshine or Distillery or uh, Harris County and or Murders or Lynching or Negro. And I found all manner of, of interesting information. I don't think people realize how much got written about in newspapers back then, far more actually than is in them today, quite frankly, especially small town stuff. Uh, I looked all, I didn't just confine my search on Genealogy Bank to one one place or one newspaper out of or even one state i looked all over all over the country and i found articles about this lynching that were far more informative in other states uh, than in georgia I used African-American newspapers. I was surprised, though, how much of African-American life was uh, in, could be found in the white newspapers that I was, that I was uh, reading. Uh, one of my favorite resources, document-wise, uh, were clemency files, which is something that I don't think a lot of genealogists use or know about, and uh, at least I certainly didn't. And clemency files, there was... Uh, Big back then, uh, the white people were the ones petitioning for clemency. I don't believe African Americans were even allowed to. I don't know, but in my case, uh, many many black people who were sent to jail uh, were gotten out or tried to get out by powerful white people. And in these these files are filled with letters describing their relationship to the to the African American uh, inmate, uh, the families. It, it, you get a broad picture of the dynamics in the community between black and white, uh, mores and customs in the community, attitudes, it, the character descriptions, uh, relationships. It, it was just a wealth of information, and all those are in the um, in the state archives. I got mine at the Georgia Department of Archives and History. Uh, court trial transcripts were also uh, a, a wonderful source, and those were in the, in, in this case, my case, they were in the Harris County Courthouse. 
uh, they started to disappear once they figured out what I was doing. But I, by then, I had everything I needed anyway. Um, what else? Uh, court appeals, where where uh, sentences have been appealed to the state supreme court. Those are also in the state archives. Uh, those are also wonderful, uh, just like the clemency files, just full of uh, full of detail. Um, oh, ancestry. Um, Root web, Roots Web, which was separate from Ancestry at the time, I put an ad in there looking for descendants of the people that my ancestors had enslaved, and I found tons of people that way. DNA, uh, I, I had found African-American cousins uh, using family tree DNA. Local colleges had lots of the local colleges is Columbus State University in my case had has a ton of oral histories including uh African Americans and European Americans so I got a lot of information that way the private papers of the judge were at that college uh I went to Columbia to get more Columbia in New York to get more oral histories I found a wealth of family papers in um at the University of North Carolina Library. Um, a lot of my, you know, I knew about those papers because I was on Ancestry looking for everybody that might be kin to me who was researching my family. So I went through all the researchers of any of my family members and asked them where they were getting more information. And so they led me to places like Columbia. Uh, Howard University uh, was a great resource uh, for Anna Julia Cooper, the first black female, the first black feminist who turned out to be a cousin of mine. Uh, Library of Congress, the NAACP papers, uh, are a wonderful resource. I went to the Schomburg. Uh, I went to Tuskegee. Uh, I went to the Auburn Avenue Research Library in, in Atlanta, which specializes in African Americans. Uh, well, that gives you some good. Oh, another well, really good source is Google Books. I don't know if people know. This is a free, easy one. Google Books. Just put books.google.com and then put in the name, and you'd be amazed at how, you know, how many books may have been written. Or somebody might have just mentioned uh, your person or, or your town in a book. Um, also, there's a there's a guide to uh, doctoral dissertations, and I found a lot of good information in doctoral dissertations, and that's online. I use the Library of Congress. I'm not sure it's something you can just get from your home. You may have to go to your local library and let get them to get you into it. Um, right. Well, there's a question coming out of the chat, and I have someone on the line. So the question out of the chat is, given the extent of your research, how can your work be used as a work of history? Uh, Well, I think it – I'm not sure – you know what what they mean by a work of history uh what i'm finding is that i'm i'm really surprised by the response i'm getting to just from just ordinary people who see it as that and are using it as that and feel that they are being educated by it in a way that they haven't. I've found that genealogy or memoir is a is a wonderful way to get people into history, and I'm hoping that schools will use it. I'm making a big push now to get it into college classrooms and uh-huh. possibly even high school, though I think that will be more difficult. Uh, so if, if people out there have connections to colleges, universities, community colleges, if they want to send me uh, names of, you know, contact people that, that I could talk to, I'd really like to be invited to um, 
you know, to academic conferences to talk to talk about it. Uh, the blurbs that were written for the book, were, which you can find on the book and, and even more on my website, uh, KarenBrannon.com, uh, are written by uh, some of the m- most outstanding history professors and one of the leading uh, professors uh, who deals with lynching. Um, you know, so it's been recognized by academics as a work of history and a, and a legitimate work of history. Uh, and I'm hoping, you know, to get it more out into the college communities. But I think that ordinary people are seeing, are, are taken to it as history. I know my editors were very, they, they chopped a lot of history out. They were very afraid that it was going to turn people off because it had too much history. Uh, but I'm, yeah. I'm not finding that. I'm not, you know, there are complaints about the book, but none of them say, you know, there's too much history there. Right. Well, we do have a caller, and caller, you are live, and that's 202-445. You are live. you have a question or a comment? Uh, hi, Bernice. This is Mary Hello. Douglas Ungaro. How are you? I'm fine. Good, good. This is Marion from, from Facebook, Slavery Descendant Writer. Yes, Marion. Right, Marion. You, you have you a doing? question or comment? Well, I'm just really fascinated, and I have to thank uh, Ms. Brannon for the work that she's put in. Um, I also was in, in uh, Ruth's Web community, and I was a um, financial supporter. I remember I was very surprised when they got bought by Ancestry, like back in 1999 or 2000. But um, I'm just really interested in your book and also as a model for uh, those of us who who can't avoid, there's no way for us to avoid the racial aspects of our history. Um, And also I don't know if you know that the United Nations has declared the decade, international decade for people of African descent. So from now until the end of 2024, and this is a human rights thing, because what you're talking about and the work you've done is not just, you know, just not just regular history, but this has to do with addressing massive human rights violations. So I'm really right. interested in what you've done, and thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Right, and so, Karen, how do you feel about that? I mean, she's telling you you've done something something great. You are talking, you're sharing, you're you're digging and letting us know the information is out there and there's so many people that won't even look for it for fear yeah, you know, that they I, may expose uh, I, the family. I think, you know, what I wanna what I wanna say to people because I think there's so many people out there like I was at the time in fear and trembling that if I told these stories, the walls, you know, the the, the sky would fall, and mm-hmm. the, the sky hasn't fallen, and it's not going to fall. But what's falling are the walls, and that's what we need to do is to bring those walls down that stand between us. And, uh, you know, I'm working with some people right now to help them find, you know, I don't mind people writing me or emailing me and asking, you know, where to look for such and such. I don't have all the answers, but I've certainly, you know, covered a lot of bases in the last 20 years, uh, and I'm happy to share what I've learned with people. And I'm happy to do, you know, if if people have conferences coming up and they want workshops and things like that, I'd be happy to, you know, it's kind of frustrating to try to, you know, download all this information in one hour. <laughs> and I know people are probably sitting there with their heads spinning like, oh, what did she say, what did she say? But uh, I, I do have a lot of uh, information that I'm happy to share with people. And, right, uh, I and just, just, yes, go ahead on. Well, the conversation is what's important. I think, you know, yes. ultimately... Uh, talk don't cook rice, as they say. But you know, we do have to we do have to learn how to talk to each other about. You know, when I was down in Hamilton, I was talking first to a black person, then to a white person, and once I was talking to two old white ladies, and their housekeeper walked through, you know, who was African American, and they just clammed up, you know, like, oh my God, if she hears about this, what'll happen? And so I, uh, my family. Uh, On January 22nd, which was the 104th anniversary of the lynching, my 
family and I, uh, my black family and white family, because now I have families of family of Rainbow family, we all held a uh, memorial service in Hamilton for the four victims, and we uh, honored them and we talked about them and we tried to empathize with what they had gone through. And we wept for them, and we were we had been shut out of the Methodist Church, which had which had offered to have service. But when some of their congregants found out, you know, read the book and found out what was in the book about their descent, their ancestors, they got angry. They didn't want to hear that history. They didn't want any part of it. So they convinced the, the preacher that he should not hold the service in the church. So we were invited to the library, and uh, many, many, many people came, and it was about half black, half white, and we had good, honest, painful discussion uh, for several hours, and it was an mm-hmm. amazing, uh, an amazing occasion. And uh, I haven't done that. I mean, there, there was just that one service, but that's the kind of atmosphere that I've been trying to uh, engender uh, in other places. I've spoken at numerous libraries and bookstores and churches, and uh, I really uh, try to get people talking to each other, and that is what's happening, and I think that's a good thing. Why? And there's a question out of the chat. Uh, Were the four victims afforded a proper burial? No. No, they were not. Um, uh, one was the preacher's body was was claimed by his family. Uh, the other three, they, they were not claimed uh, because often, I mean, there was enormous fear uh, of of being, you know, connected at that point. So their bodies were buried in a in a uh, common, unmarked grave, and I have tried to find it. I suspect it's there in the Friendship Baptist. Uh, cemetery but i can't know that for sure uh mm-hmm. i spent many many days trudging through cemeteries and looking for what might have been something that i could feel might be where they were but uh at this point i've, I've come up empty-handed mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they well, were never I... even you know yeah. none of the newspaper articles talked about them as human beings they were just objectified mm-hmm. You know, the fact that they had lived a long life, they had been in that neighborhood, they had white friends, they had black friends, they had white business partners, they, you know, had been people that were trusted, were loved, were related to by black and white. Uh, there were, two of them were deacons in a church, one was a, one was a preacher. Uh, they were church people, they had no crime record whatsoever. Uh, none of that was written anywhere i had to dig that out well at least you and although they are no longer here they are being revered as being people that were good people and i mean they did not i mean just because this is what happened to them oh it's just horrible a horrendous a horrendous death that they all went through they are yeah. human beings. Um, this is the kind of thing that people human. need to, you know, we've seen those awful photographs. We've seen, and I think the photographs have served a purpose. But back in those days, all those photographs did was confirm, you know, in in, in white people's minds that these were, quote, sorry Negroes. And, in mm-hmm. fact, most of them were very well known, were very well established. A lot of them mm-hmm. had businesses, and a lot of them were, were lynched in order to get their businesses or to put them out of business or to get their land. Uh, there were all kinds of of bad ulterior motives behind those lynchings. And one thing I have not said that I learned, this lynching was in part, in part done to cover up the fact that a white man murdered Norman Hadley. And Hmm. I found a quote from a governor in, in his inaugural address speaking against lynchings in which he said many lynchings are carried out to cover up for the crimes of white people. Mm-hmm. And this this is basically a new finding. I haven't been able to, you know, find any of the lynching 
academic literature that has uh, that has dealt with that. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly brings up a lot of issues and questions, and you yes. know, you're talking about it, and it's hard many stuff. of us may talk about it, but we talk about it behind closed doors. Right. And some of us may have even had family members that were lynched. Oh, and yes. And so it well, there it were five thousand on record, and that's that. I think is a is a great under under uh, estimate. Yes, yes. And then, I mean, what are you? You know, just think about what's happening today, and and try to look at the commonalities of what, of your story back then and what's happening today. What could you say about that? Well, it's very it's very similar. You know, I mean, we know we know there are a lot of differences. Obviously, there are a lot of differences, mm-hmm. but there are a lot of similarities. So what was what was going on um, back then was that. During Reconstruction, uh, the freed people had made some gains, some some quite impressive gains. Uh, in this period of time, they were being beat back. They were had, things were being taken away from them, and we've seen that here over the last 15 years. Uh, attempts to disenfranchise people, uh, mass incarceration. Uh, that was a uh, you know. The convict labor thing back in those days was was the same sort of thing, a kind of re-enslavement. Politicians uh, calling uh, calling out the hatred, uh, using divide and conquer methods to maintain the power of the 1%. Uh, It's very, you know, it's chillingly similar. And, you know, I thought the whole time I was doing this, I had my head in that era, and it was so sickening and so infuriating. And I thought, well, at least I'm living in another day. At least when I get done with this, you know, I can be in a better time. And it did seem that way for much of the time until now. And it feels mm-hmm. it feels so similar. I mean, I'm sitting here with a picture in front of me, uh, it's a magazine that I get from the Southern Poverty Law Center, which deals with hate groups. And there's a picture of Donald Trump, and it says the year in hate and extremism. And then it's all these pictures of all these angry hate group leaders gathered about him. And I'm trying to think, you know, this is not real. This is just a bad dream. It's going to be over with. Um, but you know, it's not a bad dream. It's real, and um, these people are real. And whether Do- Donald Trump uh, wins or loses, uh, these people are still with us. And right. the, hate is, is, the hate is still there. The hate is, the hate is still there. there. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it hasn't gone away. So mm-hmm. you know, those of us that don't hate uh, must be careful not to fear. Must be very mm-hmm. careful not to fear, not to not to give in. Well, we can't stop fearing, but we don't have to give in to our fear. And, that's right. You know, that's... Right. You, there's a comment coming out of the chat from Kevin, and he's saying you should be proud of the work you have done to continue to correct the record and establish the truth. It would be Thank great you, if the truth shall set you free. Actually, work for the telling of our racial secrets. And so if we could just have more people that are willing to come forth and yeah. tell the truth, yeah. uh, then yeah. perhaps this will uh, aid in in some of the healing. Well, Karen, this is the end. Believe it or not, we have made it through the end of this show, but I want to encourage individuals to to read The Family Tree a lynching in Georgia, a legacy of secrets, and my search for the truth with Karen Brennan. And Karen has indicated. Oh, you're so so welcome. And Karen's uh, website is karenbrennan.com, and this book is also on Amazon. This episode, for for all of you that don't know, is sponsored by Write Books That Sell Now, the online course helping you write, publish, and market your story. 
start your book journey with a totally free video training at writebooksthatsellnow.com. So I just want to just thank everyone for tuning in tonight. Thank you so much, Karen Brannon. And remember, everybody, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Thank you so much for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This show is also sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to everyone joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone, and good night, Karen Brannon. Thank you, Bernice. Thank you.